Welcome to the Israel Conversation by Massah Leadership and Impact Center, the content engine behind Massah Israel Journey. We bring contemporary, challenging, and compelling Israel issues to light in ways that help us stay connected with what's really going on on the ground. I am your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host... Liel Zahaviasa. How's it going, Liel? It's great. How are you, Mike? Good. All right. A little tired, but that's... uh. It's just that winter thing, I think. Uh, today's topic mm. is going to be the ongoing developments with Iran and not calling her in on an emergency disaster topic, but just as an update, Mary, because you often feel that you're our turn to when something bad happens. But here we just sort of want to see where things are. Just for an update, we are turning to returning guest Mary Eisen for her always welcome uh clarity and perspective and big picture explanation. How are you, Mary? I'm very well. You said that, you know, it's like tired time. Hey, the days are short. The nights are long. We're sleeping more. Having said that, it's the end of the year and we're going to look forward to 2022. We're not going to ignore that we're about to turn a corner. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, I think as we record this on, uh, on a Wednesday, I think, I think the days just now started to get longer again. I think we passed the I think winter so. solstice. It'll yeah. slowly get better. See? Yeah. All right. Well, I, you know, I, I should always mention that it's not just your expertise, it's your optimism that's helpful because it is hard sometimes when you're reading Well, that's these... why in the depth of winter, we have all of these winter holidays because yeah. it's always been hard. So let's do festive mm-hmm. things and be happy because right. it's hard. It's tough at the depth of winter. Well, but also when Even we're Even in Israeli winter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah. it depends where you live. I, I, you know, some of us are getting pretty good winter, but, uh, but it's also a little hard to be optimistic when we see, and, and it's hard to follow these negotiations going on with Western countries and Iran, with Israel clearly saber rattling and, and, and the Iranians saber rattling back this sort of, you know, we're training for this, we're preparing for that. And, I, I think it's fair to say that one of the last countries that presents a real existential threat to Israel is is Iran. And so, Miri, how do we? Iran. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so, I'm, how do how do we know where we are? Like, where are we? And and where where do you think we're going in this situation? So I'll remind ourselves that it is the end of 2021. Mm-hmm. That we've been talking about Iran going nuclear from the 1990s. So people say, "Oh, then you're crying wolf." But no, that's because of negotiations, because of all the different ways that we're talking about over time that we want to be sure that in this time period, you try to delay it. The international negotiations are trying also to delay it, almost to stop it. And that's part of the gap Mm -hmm. that if in the negotiations, all you arrive at is a delay, all you arrive at is delaying the nuclear capability by 10 years, people go, well, it's not worth it. And others say, wow, if we delay that nuclear option by 10 years, who knows what's going to happen in those 10 years? And it's only about the nuclear aspect of Iran. They clear cut, want a nuclear option. And if they're not going to go down the nuclear path, they want the international community to give them things instead of going down the nuclear path. That's the very harsh reality of where we are. Israel has two different voices. We have one voice that says delaying is not enough. Mm-hmm. So here I'm going to be the devil's advocate and say, you yeah, know, delaying is a lot. Mm-hmm. 
And you're never going to be able to negotiate with the Iranians for them to say they won't do the nuclear path. First of all, they may say it and then lie. And then what do we do? And the other aspect is that here it has to do with who the Iranians are. So as I breathe deep and look at 2022, the international community now is trying to negotiate yet another delay. But it's only about the nuclear. It's not Mm -hmm. about all of the other things that Iran does in the Middle East and around the world. It's not about exporting the Shiite revolution. It's not about destabilizing countries. It's not about arming and helping terrorists. It's only about the nuclear action. And what actions, I mean, you're describing it in general terms, but can you geographically give us some examples of where Iran is promoting this revolution, where they're fighting these proxy wars? And is it fair to say that their goal is to be the superpower of the Middle East? So that's certainly their goal, but it's funny because they don't see it that way and they they really don't see it that way. Hmm. They see themselves, the Iranians, and especially in this case, the Shiite Persian-speaking Iranians, Mm -hmm. they see themselves as the underdog, as the ones that have always been attacked, as the ones, because in the um, Muslim world, the Shiites are less than 10% of the overall Muslim world, over 90% are Sunni. And within the Middle East, um, Iran is the large Shiite country. After that, you have Iraq, which has a good 60% Shiite. And then you have other countries where they, and they're fighting a proxy war there. They have lots of undercover, different groups, not Persian speaking, Shiite speaking, Iraqis Mm -hmm. that are trying to undermine and destabilize to do the same Iranian Shiite revolution. So that's one. You continue to Yemen, where overwhelmingly it's Iranian know-how, training, money, and weapons that are fighting against the Sunni Again, when I say regime, Yemen is such an unstable country. And then very close to Iran, right across the Persian Gulf or the Arab Gulf, depends who you ask them, (laughs) what the name is. Bahrain is a Shiite majority country, so that's there. And then you get closer to us, the ruler over um, Syria and uh, the family that has ruled over the country called Syria for over 50 years is from an Alawite background. The Alawites are a spur, a branch out of Shia, um, the Shia background. So Bashar Assad um, is perceived certainly by the Muslims in the world nowadays as kind of being within that Shia, and Iran certainly sees it that way. Even though they're, they're not particularly Lebanon, religious in orientation, the Assads, they're more... So it's interesting because you don't... I mean, When we say religious, what do we mean? That would be for a different podcast and different aspect. Mm -hmm. Just think within Judaism of Mm -hmm. the enormous spectrum of what it means to be religious. And then when we look at Islam, we don't necessarily see that same um, enormous um, spectrum because it it exists being religious, non-religious within Islam. From the outside, things always seem much more homogenous than they are. When you get inside, you see, yeah. Once you go inside, you understand that somebody can, for example, they have food laws. 
So some people cannot do the food laws and not pray every day and not go to mosque every Friday. And yet they fast the entire month of Ramadan. Yes, it's fasting only during the day hours. It's during the light hours, um, not during the night hours. Having said that, you know, there are all sorts of different ways of looking at it. Within the Shia, again, you can have more um, observant, perhaps is the term that we should use, and less observant, more conservative and strict and less strict. That's both within the Shiite world. But the most extreme, cons- when I say extreme, extreme is not necessarily in the Shiite world, it's in the Sunni world that we saw as it came out with the Islamic State, where they were mm-hmm. looking at a very, very strict, conservative, 7th century interpretation to how you live your life in accordance to Islam. The Shiite revolution in Iran offers a different idea, which Hezbollah is inspired by. And Hezbollah in Lebanon from 1982, established a few years after the Iranian-Persian Shiite revolution, um, is very impacting in Lebanon and on our border. And so when we look around, you know, I'll add in for our views, it's really important for me for the listeners to realize that the Iranians don't call their revol- their revolution or their regime a Shiite regime. I called it that. Mm-hmm. For them, it is an Islamic regime, meaning there's an aspect here where they're presenting their interpretation of Islam. And it's not saying, and it's the Shiite one. And I say that because just like you could talk about Ashkenazi or Sephardic and the Sunni and the Shiite, the equivalent would be Ashkenazi and Sephardic, okay? Um, You do it this way, you do it that way. It's because your parents did it this way or that way. There are differences between them, but it's Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. So in the Islamic world, there's the Sunni, there's the Shiite, and there's lots of variations within both of them. More strict, less strict. And again, think of that in the Ashkenazi Sephardic world. This has nothing to do with violence. This has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with nationality or with regimes. This has to do with the religion. And in the 20th century, this has come hand in hand with nationalism and religion coming in together. So it's the Islamic Iranian revolution that wants to export its version of Islamic revolution to wherever there are Muslims. And you know what? There are Muslims everywhere. Mm -hmm. They want to be a power in the Middle East. This is their home ground, but they work They, the Iranian revolutionary exporters, work in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, in India and in Indonesia. I'm talking about very large Muslim-majority countries. Um, Some of them are absolutely Muslim. They are in Central America and in South America. There are Muslims worldwide. Now, hand-in-hand, there are other Um, extreme Islamic versions, as I mentioned, the Islamic State, that Mm -hmm. comes out of the Sunni world. So for Israel, when we look at Iran, we see the existential threat as being the one that's nuclear. They're having nuclear weapons changes the world, not just the Middle East. Just like with North Korea. Look at how everybody tiptoes around North Korea Mm -hmm. because they're perceived as having nuclear capability. So you don't do what you want because they have nuclear weapons. Can you imagine what it will be like when, if Iran has nuclear capabilities, everybody's going to tiptoe around, nobody's going to want to address all of the other things that they do, because those other things are not existential threats. 
It's the nuclear capability and background which would make those other things horrendously, horrifically worse for the rest of the world. You're saying that even if they don't use nuclear power, once they possess it, they're exporting of terror and policy and messing with other countries is now protected by this, you know, it's it's a political iron dome sort of that you, you, it'd be very hard to mess with Iran because you don't want to trigger a nuclear response. It's so funny how when you rephrase me, you make it so much more clear. Yeah. It's that that's true in that sense. It's part of that aspect when you look at the nuclear club in the world, which is a very limited one. In today's world, it's not something that we talk about in the 21st century. We talk about technology and artificial intelligence and about machine learning. And it's as if the nuclear issue, oh, that's the Cold War, the 20th century. And it's not an issue today. It's because for many, many, many years, it's been frozen. And in the 21st century, the only two players that have been changing this are North Korea, and look at what's happening there. Not that that's the subject right now, okay? Because it's off the topic, but it's right. very much there. And the other one is Iran. Well, the Iranians are also, I would imagine, looking at Libya, that Gaddafi gave up his nuclear policies, and Libya was destroyed, and he was killed. And, and they're saying, like, okay, so we have North Korea on one side that's pretty much, you know, bulletproof, so to speak, and then you have Libya, which fell apart. We want to be like... North Korea. Although I would argue the big difference between, and obviously one's in Asia and one's, you know, we're, we're also in Asia, but we're in the Middle East and, and, uh, we are, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's funny because on old maps, we are in Western Asia and I would yeah. never think of myself as being in Western Asia. Well, I, and if and it's, I understand it's also problematic to say Middle East and Far East because that's from a Eurocentric perspective. But uh, you know, it's just, also the Middle East should go all the way from Morocco to what to, to Iran to Afghanistan to Pakistan. I mean, it's part of those issues of how right. we look at it. So, so I'm going to stick right the, now with Western Asia yeah. and North yeah, here Africa. in Western Asia as opposed to Eastern Asia. But 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 North Korea is, as as atrocious as they are within North Korea and how the people in North Korea, you know, we'll find out years from now how horrible life has been in North Korea for years. And we'll pretend that we were, you know, we'll feel shocked, but really the information was available to us to, you know, not totally transparent, but it's pretty awful there. But, but the Un family isn't exporting their, their, their policy. They're not trying, they're not aiming at hegemony. And, and even if, Iran isn't seeing it as only a Middle Eastern power, but but as Dar al-Islam and Dar al-Harab, and they want to take over huge chunks of the globe. That's that's what really separates them, is that North Korea is a, is a disaster inside its borders. Iran isn't only rough for people living inside Iran. It's all causing right, just, instability I mean, just, uh, and trouble I mean, all around your the globe. Point there, yeah. Okay. North Korea exports the nuclear capability. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's already a problem. That's already impacting the world in a negative way. Yeah. Yes. North Korea is a horrific place inside itself. I would say that so is Iran, that both countries have yeah. chosen to invest their minds, their capabilities, everything they have into the nuclear capability, not into their own people. And that's horrible. But North Korea sold and built a nuclear reactor to Syria just in the last decade. And Israel attacked it, 
destroyed it, and only a few years later took responsibility for that event. It was such a quiet event because North Korea did it under the radar. And Iran also tries to do it under the radar, and Iran may do it more extensively. And Iran is basing it within the religious Shiite Islamic world. Okay, North Korea at the end goes out, Korean, a language mainly spoken on the Korean peninsula. Um, I, I honestly have to say this isn't when North Korea does it, it's not religiously based. Okay, it's mm-hmm. something else. Mm-hmm. And Iran is doing this combination of national and religious with the Shiite element. But both of them export it. Both of them are destabilizing factors, not just in Western Asia, could be broader. I don't remember right now who was building Libya's nuclear reactor. But I do want to give our listeners in that sense a sense of other things that could be done if they wanted to do so. Mm-hmm. South Africa in the 1980s, the apartheid South Africa, the horrible South Africa, was going down the nuclear route and it chose not to do so. Going down a nuclear route is exceedingly expensive. It's at the expense of your own people. It's the expense of investing in other things inside your country. And Iran is an enormous country. It's 84 million people. It had, it had I want to say has, a very strong educational ethos of mm-hmm. um, teaching, of learning, of academia, Iranian, Persian-speaking academia. They're at the forefront of the world, by the way, including within nuclear capabilities. And they go all over the world. They learn, they study, they're part of, you know, it's something that you know of that. Um, and, and when they invest, they, the Iranian revolutionary regime, in building nuclear capabilities against the whole world, it means you have to hide it. You have to hide the capabilities. You have to protect it. You have to do it in such a way. This is an enormous expense. And it's a country which is in free fall when it comes to its economy. People don't have jobs. And it's inside the COVID world. I'm going to add one more thing about North Korea. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God, I'm being so, it's me and my very nasty sense of humor, but we have to laugh about things, right? Okay. Because China is a challenging player upon itself within Mm -hmm. Asia and around the world. And I don't think we really know what COVID did in North Korea, but there's no question whatsoever that Iran has had by far the worst COVID um, events of the last almost two years. And almost in the world, it's just like, again, under the radar, because you look at the United States and the amount of people that were killed, but percent with the died, sorry, but the percentage wise in Iran, Percentage-wise, they had a ridiculous amount of people who died from COVID, and that came from the China-North Korea connection. Mm. They had all sorts of different Iranians who were in North Korea. There are not direct flights from North Korea to Iran. They come back via China. Guess which way they come? A little place called Wuhan, Mm. okay? And, And they got it direct from China from the beginning, February, March of 2020. So these connections can be so negative in other ways also. And, and Iran uses it more, but, um, but North Korea, both of them, that nuclear capability, that Iron Dome, as you said, because they have those nuclear weapons, is horrific for the entire world. Miri, could you give us an, an update? Um, I know we talked about this last time as well, but an update as to where the U.S. is in all of this and what role are they playing these days? 
So, Liel, that's one of those questions where um, it depends who you ask, mm. okay? So element number one to be clear-cut is that with the new administration from the beginning of 2021, and now we're at the end of 2021, the United States officially came back to the direct negotiations with Iran. And I'll remind everybody again, this is about delaying the nuclear option. It is not about stopping it. It's about delaying it. That's what the first agreement was about and canceled. And now they're trying to arrive at a second agreement. The United States is there negotiating with them. Here, there's the aspect of, okay, Iran, you're negotiating now with the international community, the United States, the International Atomic Energy Association that's based in Vienna. You're negotiating with the European countries because what you want, it's called sticks and carrots. You're going to agree to not go down the nuclear path in an overall way. That's what I meant about delaying. Okay. You're going to do less in everything. And we, the international community... But that's the six and carrots. Exactly. And we, the international community, will lower sanctions that are sanctions on banks. They can't do any banking worldwide. Sanctions on the economy, what they're allowed to import in. These are harsh sanctions that have been on Iran for many, many, many years that were slightly lifted when the agreement was signed in 2015. 2016, and then the change when the United States left the agreement from 2017, all of the sanctions from the United States were put back. So, and that the main sanction is the US one because of the banking. You you cannot do banking in the world without going through the US system. So when the US put it, even if the European Union didn't do so, doesn't matter. Nobody messes with US banks. And I'm telling you all of this because right now the United States is saying the Iranians are coming in saying we want more. Now, this is called negotiations. They're saying, you want us to stop the nuclear thing? So we'll stop it a little bit. Okay, we're going to delay. That's that's what the negotiations are about. But we want that you lift all of the sanctions. And the international community in the United States are saying, okay, this isn't a negotiation. Okay, what are they going to pose now for us? An ultimatum? Mm -hmm. And now I give you the challenges that you have in any negotiation. If you agree, you may delay it two years, four years, 10 years, you may, okay? If you don't agree, they're going down the nuclear path. Yay, who wants to play this game? Mm -hmm. And right now, the United States has stated very clearly that Iran is not cooperating, which means that they may put even heavier sanctions because you can always add more. The challenge for all of us is that not all countries in the world abide by the sanctions. So first of all, it's going to be worse for Iranians, for the Iranian people. This is always going to hurt them. And the regime manages to sell the one asset that they have, which is oil, because Iran has a lot of oil. Mm. And they sell it through proxies. um, And they sell it to China that's willing to buy Iranian oil, even when the international community does sanctions. China says, I'm not part of that. So as soon as they can sell oil, they have an income and they're using that income with their own scientists, with the help of North Korea, okay, North Korea is an exporter here, with the help of, you know, Pakistan has nuclear capability. Um, So Pakistan is Sunni, Iran is not, but most people are not aware that Pakistan and Iran share a border. So that these are, I mean, we don't always look at that when we Mm -hmm. said West Asia, Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia. Um, So you have those capabilities now. So the U.S. clear cut, is saying Iran is not abiding by rules of negotiations. And Israel is saying, if this means 
that they're continuing with trying to achieve nuclear weapons earlier, then Israel will act. And what's changed over the last few weeks, and I think, Mike, what you said also about the saber, what was Mm -hmm. the word, you know, the saber Saber rattling. It's a great term, is that Israel has said, hey, United States and all of you countries negotiating with Iran, if you don't take care of delaying it in a way that Israel would like, but it won't be that way. Mm -hmm. If you don't take care of delaying it, and that means that Iran is going forward, then we, Israel, will have to address it in our own ways, including through um, physical violent means of trying to stop it. And that's also, of course, part of the negotiation. That that's that's part of the stick that the West is going to use. We're trying to keep a war between you and Israel. So if you you know you don't want that, and Israel doesn't want that, but I always wonder how much the Iranians don't want it. You know, when I think back, don't to, want the war, or don't want the nuclear weapons. The war. I I. I Okay, so now I'm just telling you my assessment for, and it's worth exactly as much as you're paying for it. Let's but, go there. <laughs> I, 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 I don't believe that the Ayatollah and the Mullahs see any alternative than to getting that nuclear capability, especially since it's been, as you're saying, talked about for so many years. It becomes an issue of honor and pride, but also of policy necessity. They have to get there in their heads. And so they're going but to. What you need to realize is that most of the Persian speaking people. In Iran, and in a very, you know, the ones that you and I have dialogue with, the ones that, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, they live in a country ruled by an Islamic regime, but if they didn't, they would dress like us, they would have the books that we have, okay? Mm -hmm. That they also, the Iranian people think that they think, they say, we have the right for nuclear weapons. And why do they say that? Because in the Iranian eyes, Israel is a nuclear power. And they, Iran, are the ones that are threatened because Israel consistently threatens them. Mm -hmm. And in Iranian eyes, it is Israel who is the superpower, who has nuclear weapons, who's the only one in the Middle East who has so, and who constantly, Israel, says that they will take care of Iran. So the Iranian people in their own way, not just the mullahs, not just the Iranian revolutionary regime, certainly not just the Ayatollah, Khamenei, the supreme religious leader. It's actually the people there who go, why shouldn't we have nuclear weapons? Israel does. Mm -hmm. And by the way, they border Pakistan. Pakistan does. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for them, they're like Pakistan Sunni with all of the problems of Pakistan, India. Um, And then there's this Israel that they see as this, you know, cancerous problem, not the Iranian peoples per se, but um, in the rhetoric. Yeah. Sure. No, but but see, but Indian, Indian, Pakistan, I'm willing to look at as a Cold War dynamic that there's a mutually assured destruction if they go nuclear on each other. But Iran, I just you know I, I look back at the at the enormous bloodshed of the you know I'm old enough to remember the the Iranian Iraq War in the 80s. I, I'm old enough to remember sending high school students you know, giving them keys and saying, this is your key to heaven. Now go walk across the minefield so our soldiers and tanks can go through. Culturally. But they didn't start that war, Mark. Iraq no. started that war. No, I know. No. I'm not I'm not saying that, that, that Saddam Hussein was a was a person I would put trust in for his Pacific <laughs> worldview. No, that war was, but, but Iranians don't want to go back to a war 
Okay. The, the people who are the mullahs now, the people who are mm-hmm. of like, you know, the people in their fifties and sixties, the ones in government that run the country and everything like that. Mm-hmm. They were the ones who in the eighties were sent to die mm-hmm. in that war. It didn't even matter at that stage who started it. Cause it was just a horrible, horrible war. It was a so look at what Iran has done. Iran doesn't fight wars. Iran fights proxy wars. Mm-hmm. Not only do they not fight wars and they fight proxy wars, but they make sure that it's not Iranians who die in those wars. It is the different Shiite proxy groups. That's what happened in Syria. That's what happened in Iraq. That's what's happening now in Yemen. Those are three central areas where Iranians are directly involved, but it's not about Iranians dying. It's about making sure in that proxy war that the side that they want wins. It's so when you ask clever. the mullahs want a mm-hmm. war, the mullahs are worried that Israel or the United States, for that matter, that anybody would attack Iranian soil. That worries them. Do you, do you, so you think that we shouldn't worry that if Iran had comfortable levels of nuclear capability for them? that they wouldn't be an aggressive actor against Israel to destroy the little Satan, to strike a blow against the great Satan. And if that meant okay. losing out of their 88 million citizens, five, so 10 million, say, no, you don't think they'd be willing to say, take that? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say something and I hope I won't contradict myself right now. Okay. I'm absolutely against Iran achieving nuclear capability because mm-hmm. as soon as they do so, they have what you said before that iron dome. Mm-hmm. It immediately means that you can't, that they can do all sorts of things and you can't attack them. You can't stop them. You're worried about what they're doing exactly because you're always going to be worried that they're going to use that nuclear capability. And again, I give that as the worst example of North Korea. Just look at how everybody tiptoes around North Korea mm-hmm. on the Korean Peninsula with China on the one hand and just look at Japan. I mean, just everything that's happening there in that area of East Asia. And, um, and, and I say that. And then I say the additional thing, yet I do not think that the Islamic regime wants itself to be destroyed, meaning they would use that nuclear capability, that iron dome to destabilize everything way worse. But I don't think that they would use the nuclear capability to to destroy Israel. Do you understand that difference that I just I under- did there? I understand the difference. I, I, I wish I was as confident. In other words, we, we, we found out in the 90s, you know, 30 years after the events, that, uh, that Fidel Castro was pushing Khrushchev to launch the nukes out of Cuba and destroy the Atlantic seaboard. And Bob McNamara, who was talking to Castro at the time, who was the Secretary of Defense in the Cuban Missile Crisis, says, are you crazy? We would have bombed Cuba out of existence. And Castro said, well, that would have been, uh, uh, you know, I would have been willing to pay that price. I think there's a difference. For a blow against the West. Castro. No, because I Of course I there's differences. No, and, and I, I don't know that I don't. America could have demolished Cuba entirely. I don't know that whatever Israel's capabilities are. And we don't know. I don't think we could knock Iran off the map or just completely destroy. So, uh, so in other words, all of our viewers, yeah. is that yeah. what you're saying? So, is that what you're saying that they believe that they they wouldn't start with us because of that reason? I think they would start okay. with us. I think I, 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 in addition to Miri's fear of this, 
you know, this protective nuclear dome that would protect them from policy. I also fear that they would strike an aggressive nuclear strike against the cancerous Zionist entity in the name of how they understand Allah's will, even if that meant losing millions of Iranians. But it's they, their bench is deep, so to speak, and they're willing to lose lives in what they so think would be think this apocalyptic just- endgame. No, but there is a thing called nuclear deterrence, which is, again, the games of the 20th century and the Cold Mm -hmm. War and the Indian-Pakistani example that you gave before, that in those type of nuclear deterrence situations, um, I do not see them launching nuclear weapons against an Israel that they perceive as having way more nuclear weapons than them. Not only that, but it's also the platforms. Not only that... It's the defense systems that Israel has been very, very um, overt about our interception capabilities. So we use the term Iron Dome. That's Mm -hmm. nice, but that's short range. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's a mid range bits longer, which is very important for Lebanon, which is called David's Sling. But Mm -hmm. long before we had David's Sling and Iron Dome, we have Arrow. And Arrow is an intercontinental even interceptor that supposedly anything fired from Iran, we would be able to intercept. And if that's nuclear, there went large cities in Iraq or in Jordan, right? Okay. Because you intercepted over something, which Mm -hmm. is a horrible scenario. Okay. But Iran is very aware. And, And to think that those mullahs think that the destruction of Israel, the Zionist entity is, 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 you, you have to go to a very strong irrationality of your own existence. It's not about just millions of Iranians because of that Israeli capability, both to attack, even if they attack us, let alone intercept the, own, the same ones that they're coming. Um, that's, that's what I mean in that sense. Well, they, I, I don't they, see that as irrational, though. I see that as a different value system. In other words, I don't think Castro was irrational at all. I think he made a value decision. Um, I, I, I find he was willing abhorrent. to give up on Cuba. Yeah. I, look, ultimately, Hitler was willing to give up on Germany. Like, I, I think that these people eventually start making decisions that we see as irrational, but they're based on a, a really different value system, a, a culture that sent, again, to me, the thing that always stuck in my head was sending high school kids to clear minefields so soldiers could get through, blowing up high school students. That, for me, as a young person, was a very powerful wake-up call about what it means to come from a different culture that sees the world and weighs values differently. And and to me, it, that seems so irrational. You're sending, you know, my my peers, my my people my age. I, I imagine my government sending me not to fight in Vietnam, which was American policy that was wrong, but I don't think the people were irrational people and did horrendous. That was a even even people with our cultural concept can can order really weird stuff in retrospect. But here you have kids who aren't soldiers because they're not soldiers. I want you to blow yourself up. And the kids did it because they, they didn't want worse to happen to them or their family, or they believed that that key would take them to heaven with 72 virgins or whatever it is. But I have to be somewhat humble in my assessment of how they think because their cultural differences are so strong that what I find irrational in my perspective may make a lot of sense in their perspective. And and I have to take that into account when thinking about their military plans and their level of aggression. 
which is one of the reasons very clearly in the thinking that you're bringing out right now, which was very clear and harsh, and it explains why for Israel, we are not willing for Iran to go nuclear. I mean, that's part of our rhetoric. And I start with that and I am with that. Because you can't know, I said, I marry in that sense, and I do accept what you said, rationales can be different. And Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the Mm -hmm. president two ago Mm -hmm. of Iran, was absolutely the description of the 15-year-old sent into the minefields and he mm-hmm. would blow up and this is part of the revolution and that's who he is and he's a absolute holocaust denier and that's where he lives it's like mm-hmm. that was the education that he lives in and that he is and it's horrific and you're absolutely right there's a generation of those there it's, it's not all iranians and i can't discount what you just right. said right. and israel in that sense views it also through the eyes as an existential threat the nuclear capability in Iran, it doesn't matter if they use it or don't use it in that sense. Right. Okay, If they're using it as a nuclear iron dome, that's an existential threat. If they're using it, that's an existential threat. Mm-hmm. So for us, you, we don't want them to, go to, to have that capability no matter what, because we don't know if they're rational or not. We're not going to sit around and wait for that to happen. Um, and I agree with you. Who wants to be reliant on the other rationale of mullahs, ayatollahs, um, you know, like you don't, because a lot of people, including, I mean, there, there are all sorts of different levels in Iranian society, but none of us dressed as I am and the way that I live my life really understand that ayatollah, mullah community that has no women. If it mm-hmm. does have women, they're covered all in black. And I go, really? She agrees to be in there? Her rationale is impossible for me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter if I'm reading it right or you're, because it's not an available option. And Israel's military, Israel's talking about, you know, it's still talking about its nuclear planet. It's it's strategic planning to eliminate Iran's nukes, because at least from our, at least from my civilian perspective, and you Mm -hmm. you obviously understand this stuff much better than I do. It's it's not like in Syria where we can or, or or where we can just blow up that reactor or a Syrac in Iraq where we could just blow up that Iran's nuclear infrastructure is really a solid defensive target spread over enormous amounts of land and hidden and it's it's really a, it would be a challenge for Israel we can't just snap our fingers and say well let's we just don't knock them snap out. our fingers at any of those things yeah and you're absolutely right and then you get into that aspect of what is the price. Okay. Mm -hmm. Can we afford the state of Israel to not preempt against the nuclear facilities? So it depends on the fact that, because people can always show the the this or the that, the this or the that. Um, If you take out um, only 60% of the, 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 what they're trying to construct, because it's definitely been, they've learned all the lessons on what not to do, be it from Syria, be it from other places. But that still doesn't, so to me, that just means, okay, so the challenge is that much higher. And now you need to understand also that um, when you make that choice, if you don't act against those nuclear capabilities, you're going to arrive at that nuclear iron dome. Mm -hmm. If you do act, they may respond. You have to sit and look at those scenarios and try and define to yourselves, 
is it worth the price? And the price is on several levels. There is no 1981 fly with eight planes, fly back Iraq. There is no 2007. Israel never really said what we did there, but similar type of thing, fly there, take out nuclear reactor, come back. In this case, you have to fly, you still have to fly because you have to get there. It's, uh, you know, over a thousand kilometers away from Israel just to get to Iran. The facilities are further away. Okay. At least you get more frequent flyer miles. So there's that. Yeah. It's very important, but you have to start looking around and look outside the box. Maybe you're not flying there from Israel. Maybe you're coming from countries that are closer to Iran. That's part of these uh, new normalized, let's say, yeah. New type of relationships that Israel has closer to Iran. Do you arrive there from a some kind of sea angle that comes closer mm-hmm. to there or other, you know, like this? And then suddenly you start to look at other things that we've talked about over the years, okay? Why it upsets Iran, the Israeli presence is in Azerbaijan that borders Iran on the other side. Why it upsets Iran that Israel has good relations with Stan countries that are to the north and northeast of Iran. Mm -hmm. Certainly why it upsets the entire Middle East, but especially Iran, Israel's growing relationship with a country like Bahrain or the United Arab Emirates or or the non-official whatever, yes, no, with Saudi Arabia. All of those are a lot closer than where we are. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going distance-wise, what your capabilities are, where you have to get there, these changes that have happened over the last two years are directly connected mm-hmm. to the mutual view of the threat of Iran. Bahrain mm-hmm. and UAE, absolutely. Absolutely. Quiet Saudi Arabia, absolutely. Oman, where the prime minister, the former prime minister visited and then pictures came out. We don't have diplomatic ties with them. But afterwards, listeners, go look at a map, what I call mm-hmm. Western Asia. Mm-hmm. And suddenly see, Oman is ridiculously close to Iran. Bahrain mm-hmm. is close to Iran. UAE, United Arab Emirates, they're, they're very close. When I say close, I'm talking 20, 30 miles. Okay, they're very close. The Persian Gulf is not that big. Mm-hmm. And then you start to understand there are other possibilities there. Now, the Iranians mm-hmm. have their own capabilities. But when you look at uh, what you try to do in the meantime, it was... Just a year ago, at the end of last year, at the end of 2020, there was a very um, big coverage at the end of 2020 of the top Iranian nuclear facilitator, in this case, Mm -hmm. both a scientist, but also the administrator of what was perceived as being the one who kind of runs the Iranian nuclear um, program. Weaponization program, yeah. Yes, being killed in a, some of it, you know, with... You know, you get your little uh, um, phone cam, whatever, of that event mm-hmm. by something that until now has never really been explained in different ways. And you go, okay, there are all sorts of capabilities out there, okay? And you want to hope, and again, it won't be clean. It won't be easy. I think that part of the fact that Israel is in rhetoric in a way that we don't usually do, we never yeah. talk about what we do or don't do in Syria, <clears throat> has to do with the price for Israel. Okay, there's going to be a price there both with the, the pilots or the, the, you know, the, just the military side of it and the Iranian response to it. But can I add something else? Yes. Iranian response. This is like for our viewers in the Jewish agency world. Mm-hmm. Iranian response can be 100% against Jewish targets worldwide. Then what do we do? 
Well, they've done okay. it before. Wow. Yeah. That's what they've done. That's what they've done. Mm-hmm. So do we do it or not? That nuclear iron dome that they would build is horrific for Israel and the world. If we well, when, take it out, yeah. the Iranians take it out. And again, at a price, mm-hmm. the response could be against Jewish targets all over the world. Totally indiscriminately. Well, if, if the assessment is right. that the threat is existential, then the price has to be, you have to be willing to pay the price. Because the well, alternative, but do the Jews in the world who do not live in the know. state of Israel are not Israeli citizens? Okay, this is again. Do they have to pay that price? And again, I'm giving you just part of the mm-hmm. challenges. Yeah, where we as a sovereign state make decisions, and our decisions here do not only impact the state of Israel, Israel's allies. They impact mm-hmm. the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so, a really interesting piece of the puzzle that I think sometimes Jewish people who don't live in Israel, whereas Israel talks so much about the Iran nuclear threat, and it's not always on the on the first of the list of the minds of people who live outside of Israel. So that's a very interesting connection that I never even made before. Well, if you're um, in South America, you know worldwide. what I mean? Like, yeah, it depends where you live. Like in some places, they're, they've been made more keenly aware that... that uh, Argentina, two different yep. Jewish sites in the Again, you go around, you go India, the Chabad. I mean, I could, like around the world, you know, you go to these different like Chabad worldwide suddenly becomes, you know, that Jewish symbol. I'm like Chabad. Like, mm. yes, Chabad has the most Jewish spread worldwide as a facility that's obviously Jewish. They become a target. Really? Yes. And yeah. and and and, that, and I agree, Mike, with what you said before, that, that doesn't mean you don't do it. Because if that threat comes to be, then you need to be aware of that. But how to afterwards, you as the state of Israel, what do you do with the Jewish communities worldwide? How are they going to respond worldwide? They totally could be against what Israel is saying. I told you there's, mm-hmm. a, there's this aspect here where what you said about they're not being rational. Um, and you heard even from me, I'm not sure that they're irrational. And even if their rationality is different, I don't think that now you have generations of Iranians who want to commit harakiri, who want to commit right. suicide. I don't think that that's the generation we're in, but that's my opinion. Others could have other opinions who think that they are willing to put the mm-hmm. bomb, even if they will be well, destroyed. the leaders, yeah. The leaders, yes. Okay, Mary, we depend yeah. on you not only for our understanding and, and the big picture assessment, but also for some of our morale. And you always, you always end by giving us, you know, your, you, I, I find your perspective. Look, like you're saying, it's important to deal with the truth and the reality. But, mm-hmm. but you also always have, you know, what's the bigger context that we should be looking towards for maybe, maybe optimism is too strong a word or is it, or I don't know. When I look at it in day-to-day life, I think that we have so many challenges nowadays in that the last two years of COVID that have stuck us all inside rather than or or outside but apart but we're so separated i'm talking right now to the jewish people who can't come to israel Mm. talking now to israelis who can't leave the state of israel i mean just all these distinctions um this iranian quest is one which is harsh harsh it is an existential threat for the state of israel for the stability of the greater middle east and in that sense for the entire world And we look at it, we face it, and then we make those tough decisions. Making tough decisions, they're tough, may not be easy in that sense. They need to be clear. And in that sense, what I hope that we can do is to clarify, 
to have people understand, even if they disagree. And as we said, talking about these implications, that people are thinking about them straight up. I want to be sure that in the state of Israel, when they make these decisions inside the room is somebody who says, remember the impact on the Jewish communities worldwide, because that's where Mm -hmm. Iran is going to go to those soft points. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's part of our decision-making process. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's burdensome to have that responsibility, but that response, I just saw Spider-Man, so maybe it's a little on my mind, but that responsibility comes from the fact that we now have power. Absolutely. That these hey, are the burdens. I'm totally yeah. a Spider-Man person with that one. Yeah. Um, we, so, we have that responsibility and we have power and we need to use it correctly. Yeah. And a hundred years ago, that's not where we were, Jews. You know, I agree. That's not where we look were. at where that took us. Yeah. So, yeah. So at least, you know, these are the hard difficult challenges of being a people with power, but that's a better kind of challenge than, uh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Well, we're all obviously hoping for, a uh, a new, a year, an upcoming, uh, secular year with better news and better things. And we always, we always appreciate the, the sense of enlightenment and perspective, both, you know, the granular information you give us, but more importantly, I think, at least for me, and I, I think also for the listeners, and why they always want you back, for that broader perspective of how things connect. So really, from, you know, a, a person who spent decades in the world of education, I thank you for your, not only your knowledge, but your 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 mastery at explaining it and making the complex seem comprehensible. comprehensible. I, I can't wait to be back. And you have to make me a promise for the upcoming year. Mm-hmm. We're going to do something that's not about violence and potential war. <laughs> you're on. You're okay, on. We'll I'll see brainstorm either. with you, or you can even just tell us the topic and you're on for any topic. We're going to find want. it. Have the viewers say what they want us to talk uh, about. Awesome. Who am oh. I? Okay. Great. Deal. Um, Thanks, Mary. All right. We don't have to log off the you. Zoom, but it is the end of the episode. So I'm going to turn off the recording. Bye-bye. Masat Israel Journey is dedicated to shaping a promising future for the young Jewish individual, the global Jewish community, and the connection to the state of Israel. Masat offers life-transforming, long-term opportunities in Israel that allows fellows to create their own future. Check out MasaIsrael.org for more info. Now that we're part of Masao, we decided to add a cool new segment to each episode. We're going to call the Masao Moment. There are so many people having amazing experiences here in Israel, and we just wanted you to feel part of it and know what's going on. So enjoy this week's Masao Moment. Hi, everyone. Matthew Lipman here, Masao Israel educator. I was recently given the privilege of accompanying 29 Masao fellows on the inaugural Gap Year Winter Break Teal. We had a wonderful experience, wonderful experience learning about the War of Independence, and we hiked along the Burma Road, the road which was built as a way to bypass the Jordanian forces who were besieging Jerusalem. It was really a great experience. Even the weather and the thunderstorms could not prevent us from having a great time and learning so much. Hi, I'm Elliot. I'm from Arvar, and I really enjoyed uh, just learning about the history of the Burma Trail. It was a lot of fun, and getting to walk with my friends and just experience the nature, the history behind it was a really enjoyable experience. Hi, I'm Amalia Stolbach from Khavruta, and today I went on the Massage Burma Road hike, and I really enjoyed meeting kids across all the different gap years here. 